0: Welcome to Book Shambles. This week, it is an edited version of the official launch of Robin's book, I'm a Joke and So Are You, out now, that we did at King's Place in November. So there is some stand-up from Robin, a performance from Grace Petrie, a little bit from Josie, uh, a chat about therapy with Philippa Perry, and then a long conversation between Robin and Stuart Lee about their careers in comedy together, basically. So we hope you enjoy it. Thank you to our Patreon supporters, as always, patreon.com slash bookshambles if you would like to support what we do with the podcasts and the documentaries and the live shows and the blog network as well. Here is this week's episode. Hello and welcome to the official launch of Robin Ince's I'm a Joke and So Are You, the book that Chortle called one of the best books ever written about what it means to be a comedian. Please welcome author of said book, Robin Ince.
1: Hello. Thanks for coming down. Uh, See, if I was doing the announcement, I'd have just said, Chortle called the best book ever written. That would have been... Anyway, so... um, so that's not what they said. There's terrible honesty, of course, in publishing, as we all know. Um, this is... Um, so, welcome. This is kind of... It's weird, because I've basically just been playing bookshops and literary festivals, and, uh, and I've been on my own. Uh, this is the uh, 47th gig in a row with no days off, and uh, it's done some very interesting things to my mind. And uh, this, this book here has done some... I, I, won't, I won't... I'll try and remember to talk about the book. I have been told of... I did a gig in Bristol, and afterwards they said, we didn't sell many books, but it's because you didn't mention there was a book. So I'll try and remember to do that this time. Um, It it is the book that basically led me to therapy, which is, I thought by writing it, uh, I would get rid of a lot of the problems in my head, but it's quite the opposite. Uh, I interviewed a lot of therapists, and at the end of every interview, they'd say to me, I presume you're in therapy, and uh, I realised they weren't just touting for business, eventually. Uh, so I started. It's bizarre. I, I, I started therapy in, in July, and uh, if any of you, some of you might have seen me at the Soho Theatre. I started on the same day that I did the first night at the Soho Theatre. So it was like the start of my London run and also starting therapy. And I remember waiting outside the uh, the therapist's house and being. Tra- it's, it's a North London Freudian because I'm very old-fashioned. And uh, if you are thinking of which therapy to go with, do Freudians. It's fucking great, right? Because some Some days you've got nothing, but they find it. And uh, (laughs) it really about four weeks ago uh, I, I got to a house I thought I don't, think, I don't know where I want to begin today and, and uh, the day before I sent an email saying oh by the way uh, because I'm on tour there's a couple of Tuesdays that I'm not great on could we maybe move them around if possible Robin and then I walked in and you're not no small talk right you literally just have to walk in and you notice a book and you go I like that book but I'm not allowed to mention that I like that book because I just have sort to of walk in straight no small talk hello I'm on the couch right let's get started and, uh, and she goes now you sent me an email yesterday and I went yes I did actually now the problem is that I've got a couple of days. She goes, oh, now, that's very interesting. Why are you sitting up for this bit? I went, oh, I thought we were pragmatically talking about timetables, but we're not. This is part of it, isn't it? She went, yes. I went, okay. <laughs> and it's just like, it's... I was late in paying the last bill. It turns out that meant something as well. So, uh, it's... <laughs> It was fascinating, I really, because uh, that, 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 my biggest worry I think on, on, on the first day was I thought I'm about to start a London run, what if I go in and after an hour with her she just goes, you're fine, there's nothing wrong with you at all, in fact I've never met anyone better. I have no idea why you've been seeking the approbation of strangers for the last 30 years. You should stop that immediately. No, go and run a shoe shop in Lime Regis. You'll be happy as Larry. Um, but fortunately, she said it's going to take ages. So um, it's, it's been a really... Because the book has it, it it's kind of, uh, I'll, I'll give you some of the background to it, right? First of all, I, I have, I've loved stand-up since I was a kid, right? I just, it's it, I mean, the book ultimately is not just about stand-up at all, but I, I mean, I, I look back and my favourite things were, you know, watching The Goodies and watching Laurel and Hardy and then getting a little bit older and being allowed to watch Dave Allen. When you're 10 years old, you're allowed to watch Dave Allen. <gasps> Furtive, you know, and then seeing Billy Connolly for the first time. And then, and I just, I was in love with it. So, I mean, almost too much. I think um, I've, I've talked about this before, but I, I had a point about four years ago where I tried to stop stand-up. Right? I was uh, I hadn't gone mad, but it was now within easy reach. I don't know if you've ever had one of these. I'm not mad yet, but it's on that shelf, and uh, I thought I'd better stop. And in fact, Michael Legg my friend Michael Legg actually, I said I gave up stand-up for a year, didn't I? He went well. If you don't remember a lot of things you did, actually, the day after your official giving up gig, you rang me up and went, someone's pulled out uh, tomorrow night, and they wondered if you and me could uh, maybe do something. So, really, you gave up for 19 hours, which is really the length of time between gigs. And... uh, (laughs) But I tried. I, I was gonna. I was out in Brisbane, in Australia, and uh, I, I I reached that point. I had had a fantastic year in terms of the things I was doing. I'd been touring in America. I'd been, you know, I was out in Australia on my own. Everything was very, very exciting. But everything off stage had become more and more burdensome. And I, I wrote a little kind of piece, uh, wrote a blog post about why I felt I should stop doing stand-up. And I didn't realise this was four years ago. And someone back in the UK saw this blog post. It was when The Independent, you could still get it in news agents and stuff. And someone from The Independent went, wow, well, it could be news, couldn't it? And so suddenly I'm kind of, you know, without knowing it all over uh, the bottom quarter of page 27. And... Um, <laughs> And that's how my wife found out that I was going to give up stand up. So she rang me from back in England, going, Oh my God, Ron, I've just found out I've read your blog post. What's this about you giving up stand up? I went, Well, I just think I'm going a bit mad. So I just think I will have a little bit of a break from it. She went, No, you shouldn't do that. I went, No, no, no. It'll just, I just think I'm going a bit mad. A bit of a break. She went, No, no, no. But it's what you've always been. Ever since we've been together, you've always been a stand up. It's what you are. I said, No, no, no. I'll just give it a little. She went, No, 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 no. Uh, and then, then she said, How are we going to live? And I thought she meant financially, right? So I said, Oh, Don't worry. There's lots of other things I do But she continued for another five minutes and I realised what she actually meant was, oh my God, he's going to be around the house the whole fucking time. No way, no way. When's he going to realise I love him but from a distance? I've done the graph, it's very specific. When you're in Wellington, New Zealand, look at the magnitude of my love. When you're in New York, it's still quite a big love. When you're in Aberdeen, you'll see there's been a shriveling of the love there. And when you're in Croydon, it's like, oh, bloody hell, he'll be back in an hour and a half treading things into the carpet and moving the magazines and um I ended up talking on stage about the fact that sometimes you look at your partner and you realize that every now and again they might just occasionally think but would I be happier as a melancholy widow and uh not saying I definitely would but I just can imagine the quiet and um So I then, because I talked about it on stage, I then had this worrying thing where uh, my wife decided to come to the Soho run of my gig and she went, I'm going to come with my friend Rachel. I was like, oh... I've got, oh dear, I better, I'm, I'm quite careful about what I say about my family on stage, so I said, ah, oh, right, if you're going to come to the gig I better tell you something. I've got a little bit and it kind of involves you, and she went, yes. I said, well, it was just about, you know, when I'm away, she went, yes, you know, and then sometimes I come back, yes, and it's just that sometimes I look at you and I just wonder if occasionally you think, but would I be happier as a melancholy widow? And she just smiled very broadly and went, oh, don't worry about talking about that. I've spoken to loads of my friends about that kind of thing, and we spend a lot of time wondering if we'd be happier if you locked were dead. So, um... But someone that I spoke to a lot uh, for this book, and who is a. Uh, we spoke a lot about uh, childhood and, and and when we are young, trying to understand the, the child's brain. And she is a, she's a brilliant therapist. She wrote, she wrote a fantastic book called Couch Fiction, which is a kind of cartoon book about therapists and their relationship with their patients. She has a new book coming out in March, uh, and also a book called How to Stay Sane. Uh, please welcome to this stage Philippa Perry. Thanks for coming, Philippa. Uh, Happy birthday, Philippa. Thank you very much. much. It's my birthday. Oh, thank you. I didn't forget. We're not allowed to light the candles for health and safety reasons, obviously. This is true. I once said that at the Bloomsbury... She was trained at the Parisian uh, clown school, Lecoq. Brilliant work, brilliant work. Um, well, the first thing I want to talk about, because you, you, I interviewed you initially for the documentary that I did. Yes, for me? Yeah, it's for you, yeah. I would have got okay. a better bottle, but literally it was a, it was a bit of a rush. Um, and, uh, well, Philippa told me this great thing. When we were talking about, I'll give you a praise here, basically. Uh, when I was three years old, I was in a car crash, and uh, I thought it was my fault. And my mum was in a coma for uh, quite a long period of time and certainly a very long period of time for someone who's three years old and I thought it was my fault because at the time of the collision which I should add by the way it was not my mum's fault it was the other driver entirely his fault uh, I was looking for a toy machine gun behind the, the seat of the passenger seat of the car and of course I thought oh man I was looking for that and then there was a crash so I, these things are connected and I waited to get into trouble and I was like, oh, my God, I've done this thing. And I really... No, you have that. That's fine. Uh, um, I think therapists are best drunk. Uh, the, um, and so I had this kind of... Uh, and, and, and it was and it was a very... A lot of things happened after that. As I said, my mum was in a coma. And, uh, in fact, one of the hardest things about writing this book is handing it over to members of the family. Because as a stand-up, you can talk in front of, you know, 500, 5,000 people, the weirdest fucking shit. But then you go, I hadn't realised my dad's in. I'm going to drop that bit. You know, it's a strange thing. And so none of my family knew that as a little boy I thought I'd caused the accident and one of the hardest things I was mentioning before was when my dad started reading the book and I spoke to him and uh, just at the end of the conversation he said, oh Robin why didn't you ever tell me you thought it was your fault I could have done something which was really, you know, very
2: hard... It was because you were three.
1: But that's the thing, isn't it, of understanding children's minds. This is is what I found. There were a lot of different things we talked about in the documentary and and for Mm. this book, but this bit of us, of working out how we can get children to be able to express themselves or whether there is even a use in, in, in sometimes the expression of these ideas.
2: Well, children do express themselves, but it's not usually with words. But they are very good at pinching their sisters, setting fire to things, um, not cooperating and uh, crying all night and having nightmares. So that's a way of, that's their way of articulation. And it's the adult's job to interpret that and not to interpret it as you are a bad person, but realise that all communication, all behaviour is communication. And I think you did plenty of things to communicate all was not well, well in World Robin. What did you do?
1: Well, I had—I was—I night terrors were the thing. I used to have these. Uh, for the first time, I swore at my dad. Apparently, was when I was—I was deep in a nightmare, and he was trying to wake. Come on, Robin, wake up, wake up, wake up. And then it, well, I think I was five, and uh, during the shaking, I just went fuck off. And then he went, wake up, wake up, wake up. You know, there's suddenly, but but there was, but there was a. I, I think what's interesting. This was the early 1970s, and mm. there was lots that you know. A, a, as a family, we remained very close, and there were a lot of things done. But I think the knowledge of what goes on, you know, because I think it's interesting, my sisters were seven and ten, and I think the effects on them are very different, but they are, there's clear effects, but the brains, the level of the your development of the brain is, was so different for each one of us.
2: Yeah, because at three, you're in an incredible, incredibly formative stage, whereas at seven and ten, your characters are beginning to get more fixed. I mean, we're never completely fixed, otherwise I wouldn't believe in therapy. Um, but um, you're much more plastic in the brain department, age three.
1: Something that I, a lot of people, I, I, I talk about quite a few of the things you say when I do book shows and stuff, and, and, and one of the ones which people find most useful, and I find useful as well, was the first time you articulated the fact that one of the problems of being a human being is that we judge everyone else from their exterior and we judge ourselves from our interior.
2: Right, so that's correct. So there's always a disparity. Yeah. Yes, so um, I will judge you from your exterior, but I will compare you to my in my interior, which is like, oh God, I'm really scared. Oh, oh God, oh look at Robin, he's so confident, and I'm so scared. But actually, on the surface, I probably look fine.
1: Have another glass. <laughs> the uh, <laughs> it's, but that is what do you, what do you feel are the you know, how. I mean, just the moment you know that, I think it's helpful. I think from that point onwards, mm. you start to... But there is still, you know, I, I wrote about things like, you know, imposter... I, I know it's not actually a syndrome. People normally call it imposter syndrome. You know, all of these things seem to be... Like I once had an argument with a Nobel Prize-winning scientist about the fact he went, I couldn't do what you do. I went, well, I couldn't do what you do at all. You've changed the possibilities of humanity, and I sometimes interrupt a physicist when people get confused. <laughs> you know, that's why. I do. And that bit where... and well, Eventually, we had to be... separate. It was Paul Nurse, who's a fantastic... Yeah, uh, who I'm, works I'm, yeah. works at the Crick Institute. And... But that bit where whatever we are able to do, we can ultimately see as banal, because you yeah. can do it. Yeah, but you so see we know someone... the
2: secrets of doing it, whatever mm. it is. We know how it's done, so it doesn't have any mystique to it. But we're not quite sure how Paul Nurse manages to make all the discoveries he makes. And so he is a god, and we worship him as one. But I feel like that about you, because there's a bit in your book that you say about someone. He's the um, most articulate astronaut I know. I thought, how many astronauts <laughs> do you know? <laughs> God, I don't know any astronauts. I was in the same room as Buzz
1: Aldrin once, but I think that counts. So, oh, Josh, that's enough. Oh, right. Who else here has been in the same room as Buzz Aldrin? Oh, that's Wait. a lot of hands. That is... Yeah, unfortunately, it does turn out that doesn't count at all. (laughs) Uh, Charlie Duke. Oh, good, I'm in the lead. So um, they both stood on the moon. Same, the uh, if that is true. uh, (laughs) um, But this is that. uh, What do you? I mean, for yourself. How do you deal with that? I mean, you work with a, a very you know, broad number, of, a, a lot of the kind of people that you communicate with. You know, how do you at times think, hang on a minute, I'm now losing hold of the fact that I'm, I'm not, yeah, you know, this person is not so much greater than, than, than me, you know, whatever it might... Do you have methods that you can...
2: Well, uh, when I first started as a psychotherapist, some very clever people came to see me for therapy, and internally I was going, oh, they're so much cleverer than me, how can I possibly do this? So you trot along to your supervisor, and the, the supervisor reminds you that it's not the content, you don't have to learn nuclear physics or whatever they excel in, it's the process you know about process. And I go, oh yeah, I do. Okay, good. And that's what that's what I remember is that I know about how we communicate. Even if I don't understand what we're communicating about, I can tell whether someone is manic, mentioning no names, or whether <laughs> um, someone is depressed, or um, or is hiding, or is you know you can sort of tell the process. Even if the content might go over my head.
1: Well, the, there was something on therapy that, again, I thought was tremendously... When, when I wrote the, the bit about the car crash in, in the book, I was quite apologetic, and I was quite worried because I know of people who've had really hideous traumas, and in the end, I was just a three year old who thought he'd caused his mum going, you know, into a coma and. Well, actually, and all the you were behind the
2: back seat looking for a gun. Yeah, I mean, you've been told not to do that, Robin. Yeah,
1: there's a lot of airlines that won't take me anymore, <laughs> and uh, but I, but that, uh, but. So I was, and now I look back and I think, no. Do you know what that is? Big. But you were saying to me about the fact that this is one of the problems people have as well, which is there are things which have damaged them, things which they still carry with them, things that they can't extinguish, and which can have negative. But the fear of the embarrassment of going, oh, but that's still nothing. There's people, who've, and so, for instance, approaching therapy, very often people think, well, that, no, no, I haven't suffered enough. You know, that, that.
2: What, I, what I say about that is that you know, if you've got a broken leg, do you deserve to go to A&E? Because someone else has got two broken legs and a broken finger. So obviously you don't deserve any medical attention because your leg isn't as badly broken as theirs. I mean, that's rubbish. Even if you've broken your finger, you do need a splint or something. So it, it's not really very helpful to have a hierarchy of pain, I mean, some people can commit suicide because their cat has died, and some people bravely carry on when they've lost all their family. So it's, it, it really makes no sense to have a hierarchy of hurt. And Trauma yes. is trauma, and we can all get traumatised by different things.
1: And do you, think, do you feel that we... Are we, as, as a culture, getting better at, at, at this? Do you think, or are we...? I think we're so getting slightly
2: worse at the moment. Right. Uh, because we're talking about it, so it's all blowing up in the air and we don't know what to do with it or where to put it, and it was actually probably more comfortable when it was all packed up in boxes. But in order to sort something out, you do have to unpack it and throw it up in the air before you know how to put it back in a better way. So we're in the process of unpacking, and so that is a bit chaotic, I
1: think. Well, the unpacking thing, because something else that I I, I realised was... Being able to turn things into stories seems to be a very useful thing. Yeah, be because you're,
2: you're then, you're making sense out of feelings that had no sense. So if you make a story, it is doing what we call processing it. Because you've got all these feelings of like, you know, as a three-year-old, you probably didn't have the words to say, I caused that accident. But when you later made it into a story, because that's how it f- you know fitted your feelings about the accident then you can challenge the story and 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 edit the story and make a different story so it's an essential thing to do when you've got sort of like wordless angst is to put words to it is to make a story it doesn't matter if the story's true or not as long as it resonates and feels true truth is so overrated
1: that's where we're going to end. Truth okay. is, because that, that gets us ready for next week's cereal. Okay. Um, uh, ladies and gentlemen, th- and coming for, on her birthday as well. Uh, yeah, but, but look around?
2: what the fun I'm
1: having. I thought a caterpillar cake, it had to be a caterpillar cake. It
2: did. And so
1: uh, much. I wouldn't have given you a caterpillar cake if you were Freudian, though. So, uh, Ladies and gentlemen, Philippa Perry. <laughs> I'll bring that off with me so you can. Uh... Thanks very much, Philippa. She was so... I love the first time that I talked to her about that idea because it, it, it was because I'd just seen someone shouting at a child. And I know as parents, we, you know, everyone has a moment where they lose their time with the child. But you know that bit where you see it go on too long and you think, no, you go, why have you done that? Why have you done that? As, as if a child has a brain that's very... Like, I, I saw that on a, on a train where the child, like, why have you put yogurt on the window? As if the child's going to look up and go, it's the medium I'm working in at the moment. You know, it's just bizarre. <laughs> Um, I, uh, the next person I'm going to bring on is, uh, appears in the book as, as uh, a, a story. Because I, I think one of the things that I love about not just stand-up, all, all forms of, uh, I, I think, art, especially a kind of art that has direct communication, is, is sometimes you can... People can get things... Like I, I love those moments where every now and again... I think I knew I was on the right track in stand-up where I was doing a gig in uh, Nottingham. And a man came up to me afterwards and he went, I'm very annoyed with you. And I said, oh, sorry, what have I done? He went, well, I've always thought that I'm quite weird but I've just sat in with your audience and watched you, and I've realized we're all bloody weird. So it turns out I'm quite normal, which is disappointing. And, uh... and the person I'm about to bring on is, is my, my friend Grace Petrie, and I'm just, I'll just tell you a quick story about, which I thought was, um, we were on tour, and, and Josie Long was with us, all, all three of us going around together, and we're having a lovely time. And um, we did this gig in Nottingham, Pretty certain it was Nottingham, and there was there was someone in the audience. None of us. We talked about it afterwards, but we didn't mention at the time. But there was someone in the audience who looked kind of sad. I don't mean they looked angry with the gig, or I think they looked like they shouldn't have been there. That it just wasn't. You know, they'd come out and they weren't in the mood to be out. And then about six months later, Grace was playing. I think not far from here. I think it was one of the places in in King's Cross, and. um, she found out this story about this woman who was in the audience. And uh, I'm sure you all know Grace's work. You know, Grace writes brilliant songs that are both songs, sometimes songs of, of political activism and protest, and sometimes you know, songs of, of love and fear and jealousy, which are predominantly written very much from the specific perspective of being a young lesbian woman. And, um, and this woman had left a, a note for her. And she went, I don't know if you remember, I was at a gig in Nottingham, and I shouldn't have been at that gig that night, because I just didn't feel happy. And I didn't know what was going on in my life. She said, and then I watched you doing your songs. And suddenly I thought, oh, I've realised what it is. I'm a lesbian. And it had taken watching. You know, obviously, all those things have been in her head. But suddenly she went, oh, oh, it's that. That's, I shouldn't be going out with that bloke at all, should I? This is, This is not helping, you know. And I thought that was a, you know, a wonderful thing about how you know, art can do that. So uh, she's having, she just finished her tour. And uh, I think nearly all of the venues sold out. And she's playing big places, bigger and bigger places. She's going to tour with Frank Turner. She's just been supporting the Dresden Dolls as well. She's one of my favourite people to work with. Please welcome to the stage, Grace Petrie.
3: I thought I would play you a song that I wrote because of working with Robin. Um... I feel under pressure to return his nice words about me. Um, And obviously, because it is his book launch event, I thought I should probably be nice about him as well. But um, some of the best opportunities that I've had have been um, through working with Robin. Um, uh, Some of the best touring that I've ever done has been with him. And it was through him that I... um, you know, I've been telling this story on, on, on stage on my on my tour that I've just finished and, and I've been saying every night that when I, I've, I've done a lot of work with the comedian Robin Ince that it really does not feel like that does him justice to just call him a comedian. Um, you guys I'm sure all know this but um, he's so much more than that. I think that he's so, um, I find him one of the most interesting and interested people that I've ever met in my life and it was through working with him that I've learned so much about so many different things that I never would have been exposed to um, and one of them is this story which is about the golden record. Um, I think I, I can normally rely on quite a few yeses to this question when I'm playing to a Robin Ince audience, but uh, do we have any Carl Sagan fans in the room? <laughs> quite a few, OK. Oh, God, you got lit up there. I didn't ask for that to happen. So Carl Sagan if you don't know, obviously Carl Sagan was a cosmologist who did many interesting things in his career. He worked for NASA for many years and he worked on Voyager 1 and Voyager 2 which were space probes that they sent out into the universe never to return. Um, They were supposed to um, take photographs of the universe and transmit them back to Earth. And it occurred to Carl Sagan's team at NASA when they were doing this in 1977 that if they were going to send these things out into space never to come back then there was a chance uh, that they might be discovered by aliens, right? So they decided to put something on board, Voyager 1 and Voyager 2, that would tell the story of Earth and humanity if these things ever were discovered by other life forms. And because this was 1977, the form that that took was a vinyl record, right? onto which they recorded what they considered to be the best sounds the Earth had to offer. So they recorded the best music they thought humanity had ever produced, from, like, uh, Mozart right down to uh, Chuck Berry doing Johnny B. Good, and then also uh, natural sounds like bird song and then some lovely hippie stuff like the sound of a mother kissing her newborn baby for the first time, right? It's a beautiful story for so many reasons. One of my favourite things about this story is that in the 70s, this is just the kind of shit they spent government money on. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> oh, Amazing. My governments will not pay for essential services. And in the 70s, they were like, mixtapes for hypothetical aliens. Yes! Um, (laughs) A million dollars. (laughs) Yeah. I know, they had the right idea. Um... The person who was in charge of collecting all of these sounds and pieces of music together was a woman named Andrian. And when she was very near the end of the project, she was just missing a piece of Chinese music and she found this two and a half thousand year old piece of Chinese music which she knew would be perfect. And she called up Carl Sagan, her NASA colleague, she called him up on the phone at 10.30pm at night and they spoke on the phone for an hour and at the end of that hour long phone call, Carl Sagan and Andrian were engaged. Right, this is completely true. And they got married and they stayed together until he died in 1996. And it even gets better than that because she said to him, we are trying to recreate humanity and the human experience. And you and me, we're falling in love. And that is the most incredible human experience that we have. So they also recorded onto those golden records alongside Mozart and Chuck Berry doing Johnny Be Good and Birdsong. There is also the sound of Carl Sagan and Andrian's heartbeats and their brainwaves when they were thinking about how incredible it was that of all the people on Earth, they'd found each other. Um, I learned that story from Robin and, uh, and I wrote this song about it. It's called The Golden Record. If I could take down every inch of you in gold Engrave it in the metal of my soul And send it out to worlds beyond those known To find a cosmic gramophone Well, no listener would ever understand The lightning bolts between two grains of sand Some people never witness shooting stars Most never know a love like ours I didn't know My heart was closed Till you came to unlock it, yeah, you found the perfect song And I couldn't stop it, not for anyone So send it in a rocket, yeah, to play after I'm gone You're the plug that fits my socket All the lights came If I could reach beyond the stars that we can see To sing for them a song of you and me No amount of any greatest hits Could explain the way it fits And if I could bottle every beat my heart has missed Or the trembling in my hands when we first kissed How time and space and sense and circumstance gone when we began to dance And I didn't know My heart was closed Until you came to unlock it Yeah, you found the perfect song I couldn't stop it, not for anyone So send it in a rocket, yeah, to play after I'm gone You're the plug that fits my socket all the lights came on You're the plug that fits my socket All the lights came on You're the plug that fits my socket And all my lights came
1: Uh, I'm going to bring on, I'm really pleased, the person I'm going to bring on now, it's the first gig that they've done uh, for, I think it must be four or five, or it might even be six months, because uh, they've gone away and had a baby, and uh, it's, uh, she's someone that I've, I've realised that I've known her now for quite a lot more than half of her life, and I, can't, I think the first gig we did together was when she was 17 years old, and she's one of my favourite stand-ups to work with, and I do a thing called book with her, and she's just brilliant. Please welcome to stage, Josie Long.
3: Hello,
2: hello, thank you so much, oh my god, yes, it's my first time on stage since I had a child, um, this is technically one of my uh, maternity leave top-up days, um. <laughs> But if the Department of Work and Pensions are in, uh, the voiceovers I did don't count because it was only one hour at a time. So it counts as one day, so get fucked. Um, (laughs) Hi, it's nice to be here. I keep having dreams every single night that I'm on stage and I have nothing to say. So strap in.
0: Sorry, we've had to trim Josie's bit to there because it's her whole new routine that she's working out. So, uh, if you're coming to nine lessons, uh, you might see it there. Uh, Josie's doing the nineteenth of December. Anyway, on with uh, the rest of the show.
1: On um, now, because uh, we're overrunning a little bit already, uh, and I promised it wasn't going to overrun tonight. Uh, uh, please welcome to uh, the because it has really been an evening, undoubtedly, of uh, I would say the metropolitan media elite, and uh, for that reason, please welcome now to finish that off, Stuart Lee. You were, I was trying to think of when we first gigged together, and I think it was the Cabbage Patch in Twickenham where we talked about the films of Hal Hartley, which at that point for oh, uh, yeah. uh, the metropolitan media elite uh, on a budget were the main things, weren't they? In terms it of it might have house. been there, or, or it could have been at the uh,
4: at that one the Hems in Soho, but it probably was the Cabbage Patch. Yeah, I think I can remember who else was on. It was um, the late Jimmy Miller and. Uh, and a man who and, and Noel James and that sounds about right doesn't it yeah. this isn't of interest to them but it, it is it's, it's a great
1: that. there is that point where you realise because we've had it lots of times you're in a green room before a gig and every single night it's like that scene in Broadway Danny Rose who yeah. was that guy who yeah. oh he died yeah and it was yeah. the one who did the impressions of in his pants you remember mm, the guy I yeah it was the although I, it I can remember every gig of the
4: first year of stand up I can remember exactly who was on the bill and everything about it I can't remember much of the last 29 years after that when <laughs> the yeah. first year I bumped into Milton Jones the other night and he said, where did we first meet? And I went, it was at the Bearcat in Twickenham in September 1989. The bill was you, me, Nick Hancock and David Baddiel. He went, yeah, it was. And he looked really frightened. But as if <laughs> he thought that, that I was obsessed with him and had sort of <laughs> traced everything I'd ever done. But, the, but actually, it was just that first year. Was I was so frightened all the time and nervous and sick. And it, ever, getting to try out spots everywhere seemed such a stress out that all those things live incredibly vividly all those different, different nights of the first places you went to, to do shows. And, um, which leads us quite neatly into some of the things that you talk about in the book, which is... Um,
1: Very rarely do people see that Des O'Connor <laughs> side of you, do they? But it's, it's, all, it's always a treat when that happens.
4: Well,
1: I've got an idea, actually, of doing... I don't know if anyone's
4: done this, but I thought I might do interviews like this with people... And then um, make them available for downloads on the internet. <laughs> I don't know if that's been done, because I'm not. But I thought it might be a good way of. <laughs> I'm going to call them uh, um... <laughs> N- what? No netcasts. I'm going to call them. <laughs> um, but I'm going to make all the questions about me, whoever I'm talking to, and uh, and my, it'll be. Do you remember that time that I said this to you? And the person would go, yes...
1: (laughs) Yeah, I remember that giant sand gig. Yeah, it was well, really good, yeah. yeah. The, um, I was thinking you were going to say, because I, I was just imagining a, a nice thing where taking all those Des O'Connor interviews, which would have things like, Dominic Holland, have you ever bought a watch in Hong Kong? Yeah, yeah. And then he'd do his watch in Hong Kong routine. But you, you take all the questions and then move to other comedians. Yeah. So you have to go, Milton Jones, you ever bought a watch in Hong Kong? I haven't got a routine about that. Well, fucking come up with one now then. You know, just I, I had to go on Des O'Connor about 15, 20
4: years ago when Jerry Springer, the opera was on. They wanted me to promote it and... Um, the researcher kept trying to get routines out of me that Des could ask leading questions to. And I went, I haven't really got any that will work, right? And he's going, you must have... You know, Des could say, have you ever been on a bus or whatever? And I go, I've got nothing. I said, look, I said, I've i spoken to people before in my life. <laughs> I'll just talk to him, it'll be fine. And Des was really annoyed about it in the end. But then I went on, and it was fine, because I asked him about when he when he used to do pr- proper stand-up and... and, and uh, and when he, he's got, you know, famously, he fainted on stage at the Glasgow Empire. He was so nervous, Des O'Connor. And um, as a joke, Morkham Wise, who he was on with, started writing things on the bottom of his shoes in the future. And the idea that it, this message would come from the bottom of his shoes <laughs> next time he, he fainted. And of course, he really liked that. But, you know, it was much better just talking to him than having uh, a prepared thing, which is why I said to you out there, just rip up this questions that we've planned. Very clear. And let's see how, really honed beforehand. how it goes.
1: Yeah. Yeah. The... <laughs> uh, that is, I'm just thinking, because it, what could he ask you? He could have said something like, Stuart Lee, I hear that you don't like the hymn All Creatures Great and Small. And then that will, that's a 49-minute routine. Said, so there's no...
4: I understand you're involved in a kind of love-hate relationship with your own perception of your career. You could say something yeah. like that. <laughs> of course, what he could have said to you is, I understand you've written a book, yeah. but you're also a stand-up comedian. What is best,
1: saying jokes out loud or writing them in a book? Yeah. <laughs> oh, God. I've had Because that thing where, where PR people go... I've got a very nice person who does it, but there's things which have no opportunity. Like, I, I, I reviewed the newspapers with Rusty Lee the yeah. other morning, and it wasn't even about my book, it turned out. There was no mention of the book. So I thought, who's going to watch Sunday Morning Live and go, who was the bloke who had a right take on driverless cars? I wonder if he's written a book. Mm. And then I did a thing on Jeremy Vine the Jeremy Vine's Channel 5 show. I was on with a guy called Bill Browder, who is on uh, Vladimir Putin's assassination list. Oh, yeah. Right? So, and he explained what he had done and the fact that his best friend had been tortured to death by Putin's re- regime mm. and then finished by saying, and that is why I will never stop doing what I'm doing. And then Jeremy Vine went, Robin, you've written a book. <laughs> now, that is just... And that... that it, it felt overly mercenary. Hadn't I? Yes, I have. There's very little on Vladimir Putin's assassination list. I have it's got a right s- take on inner voices.
4: It's not even a secret list, that, then. People that are on it know they're on it.
1: Yeah, and then you go up and down. <laughs> it's like that thing on Top Gear with fast cars and stuff. It's the same. Yeah, it's terrifying. But, I mean, you've written a lot of books.
4: And, um... <laughs> what... Robert Fripp from King Crimson once said to me on the phone I don't know him this isn't a celebrity anecdote Uh, he said who are you and why are you ringing me and I said (laughs) you see I could do stuff like that easily if I I could be really like a normal but anyway he
1: he, uh, what I love is, though, that you would do that, but still the audience at that mainstream club would go, who's Robert Frick? <laughs> so you've, you've still got us kind of lost there. He said that he always knew,
4: he said that he knew when it was time to reform King Crimson and that the kind of the, the be, the being of this group would sort of call to him and he would realise that he had to put it together again. And is that, you, is that what it's like when you know you have to write a book? Is it there sort of gestating and you feel, I need to get these things down? No, it, no, no, not okay. at all. <laughs> Hey, I'm what's trying to you I'm, well I'm trying to help you
1: here. <laughs> you. It was. I mean, you, you've 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 written some as well. I mean, I remember the the first one that you you uh, well not the first one, not not uh, perfect full, but the um, when you wrote uh, what's the second one? Uh, how I escaped my yeah. certain fate, and that bit writing about stand up. What is the report? Because what I get worried about is. When there are points where you take things very, very seriously, and then you think, "Oh, but we are still just fools and idiots," and that's what—and that bit of trying to get the balance between—because I think it is. I was mentioning before, to, you know, about it can be really useful. and There are things that people get get from stand-up, and then you still sometimes feel a bit like a charlatan if someone comes up and goes, "Oh, I got really—I've I've been feeling really—and it was really useful to so you." And you think, "Oh, but I'm still just an idiot, really." And am I? Is there some kind well, of? Well,
4: what I, what I thought was when I when I when I wrote that book, right? I I got frustrated by journalists inability to review me correctly and um, (laughs) I felt (laughs) that um, if only they understood more about stand-up they might have a better chance of giving me better reviews and so I no but but what it actually was was I I really liked Dave Allen and I wanted to read I wanted to read about Dave Allen and I wanted to know how the routines were generated how he worked them out because I didn't understand how that kind of stand-up which was much more like what we do was able to exist in a 70s club circuit. I didn't know, and and the biography of him was just about who he played golf with and drinking whiskey mm. and ex-wives. There was nothing about the creative process at all, and actually there weren't a lot of books about the creative process of stand-up at that 15, Fifteen twenty years ago, there were a few like overviews of it as an American phenomenon, and there was kind of Steve Martin's book, and there was
1: quite a good. Steve book, Martin's boy. is one of the. If you've not read Born Standing Over, well, I, I read think it, that actually, that and uh, and actually Bob Monkhouse is crying with laughter. Yeah. It's a really fascinating book about the stand-up. Well, there, there weren't many that, that used the, the
4: sort of little bits I'd gleaned of critical theory as an English literature student to sort of look at stand-up as if it were an art form. And I think that, that it, it does mean a lot to a lot of people. It is a practice now, and there's a lot of people doing it, and it impinges on our lives, and it's often the point where ideas of taste or what's acceptable or, or, or is sort of brokered. And um, So I think it, w- it was something that was worth r- writing about and and, and and now a lot of people have come at the, the genre from all sorts of different angles and this is again a, di- a different thing that academics have nudged towards, the sort of psychology of it, but it's not been done in this way before. And I think it is a, it's a really interesting thing and it also it's a, a jumping off point for you to find comparisons between thought processes for comedians and thought processes for all sorts of people in all sorts of different walks of life about how we think and how we have ideas
1: did you ever have that moment of that the the legend of comic because there are comics that we know who fall into that oh Lenny Bruce used to take a lot of heroin I imagine if I do I'll become brilliant and you know that there is that and and you see it with writers and and that and that it's very easy to fall into a romantic notion yeah and I hope that the book doesn't you know the point is that it's actually with luck it's talking about this is shared there's lots of shared human traits and and these things are sometimes there's a a line that spike milligan i changed it slightly to make it less racist uh but it's um about the fact that basically uh for instance mental health in comedians is like it's not that there's more poor mental health in comedians it's just that it's like a black ink stain on a white shirt yeah shows up more i mean as far as like addiction and substances
4: i I think it was i that wrote in the introduction but um (laughs) the uh But that Mrs Maisel show, it's on one of the cable channels and it's about 50s stand-ups in New York and there's lots of great things about it but one of the things that isn't great is that Mrs Maisel, who's a middle-aged Jewish housewife who decides to try her hand at stand-up turns up sort of three times at clubs with open spot nights a bit drunk and annoyed with her husband and improvises off the top of her head three sort of perfectly written routines that go on to sort of form the basis of her career and I don't really think that happens very often. You know, it's people would like to think it does, and a good comedian, like Eddie Izzard, was a master of this in our day. Can make it look as if everything's occurring to him in the moment, mm. and makes the audience feel they're part of that process. Some people do that for real, like uh, you know Ross Noble to an extent. And but really, it's it, the idea that you'd take some sort of character-altering substance and come up with a perfectly formed thing, is not is not the case. Although. A comedian that we know of our generation, who in his day we would have said was one of the 10 best of all time, did confess to me that the the first 15 years of his material, that everyone thought was brilliant, he'd written on drugs in two nights and couldn't really remember how he'd come up with it (laughs) or how to ever really do it again. um, (laughs) (laughs) But other than him, there's no... (laughs)
1: But the, well, you, you briefly, you, you mentioned there slightly ab- about kind of taste as well. And, and that was one of the things that I found interesting. When I was, uh, that, that chapter was, I, I was looking at that, because I think quite a lot about how the jokes might affect people. If, you know, with certain subjects, I, there's, uh, so I interviewed Richard Gervais, who I think I kind of disagree with quite a lot on a lot of the, Subject matters and the way he appro- we're well, not subject matter, but the way he approaches stuff. And then Tim Minchin, who thinks uh, very deeply about when, he, when he's writing songs that are picking on particular institutions or individuals. He thinks about. And then Barry Crimmins, who was who the book's dedicated to, because uh, did, you, did you ever see Barry's? I've seen a film
4: of it. Yeah, 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 yeah.
1: Bar- but he did the stand on at yeah. uh, Edinburgh. Right. And 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 Barry's thoughts, I thought, were he he said he said I've never done jokes about cancer because I've never thought of a joke that was so funny or so pertinent that I'd then think, oh, I don't really mind that those five people were really upset remembering about someone they'd lost or their own situation. It was a cracking gag. And then he talked about, there was a a situation where he was playing a, a club, I think in the Midwest, and he went on last, and this couple in the front row really loved watching him and afterwards he's chatting in the bar with them and they say oh thanks very much we had a really great time and uh and we just really enjoyed it and because we don't come out very much he said oh, oh you don't come out he said, and the, the, the couple said well normally it's about once a year and he said how can we only come out once a year He said well because uh, we've got a child who's severely disabled and uh there's only one person who we really know who can care for our child so we come out maybe we go to a band or maybe we have a meal and tonight, this, uh, the first two acts just kept saying retard this and retard that. And we never really felt comfortable. And then you came out and very quickly we got a sense of who you were. And he said to me, after he said, the thing is that words are shrapnel and you have to think very carefully about how you use them. And I think that is, you know, at the moment there's a huge number of free speech debates going on. Yeah, we're we're always being told that the right wing, for instance, the only people defending free speech, though they seem very specific on which bits of free speech they're defending and seem less keen on some of the other ones. Uh, It's almost like it's their speech they're defending. But it's like, but I'm interested, you know,
4: when, when you are. Well, I had a situation exactly like the one you've described, actually. About ten years ago, I was working out a routine which was basically the starting points were all horrible things people had said about me on Twitter, right? And and I actually managed to get 60,000 words of sort of ten-word... uh, you know, slag-offs of me. And um, so and the uh, cumulative weight of it was quite funny. But this was an early tryout out gig, new material night at Soho Theatre, and one of the things someone had said about me was it looks like Morrissey with Down syndrome, right? And I said this amongst 50 other things. And um, some people came up afterwards and said, very similar situation, they don't get many nights out because they've got a daughter with Down syndrome, and they didn't like coming out to hear that word being the laugh point in a night out and that they sort of didn't expect it of me because they felt like I was m- more careful about the collateral damage of jokes. And I said to them that um, that it, it wasn't me saying it, it was a quote from a real thing. Hopefully people were laughing at what an awful thing it was someone to say and that I, I said someone wasn't going to change it. But I didn't do it again after that actually because um, I didn't feel like it was funny enough to risk the upset it might mm. cause to one person. But if it had been... If it had been a more worthwhile use of that word, I probably would have done it. So I think it's, it's like a numbers game, isn't it? You know, but in that instance, it absolutely wasn't worth it. Just change it. You know, we can never tell. The maddest one I ever got like that was I used to have this long bit about um, people's reactions to the death of Princess Diana, which tells you how long I've been doing this now. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> it was about and um, it was about all the mad tributes people left at Kensington Palace, and you know, and a woman came up at the Tattashaw Castle boat in tears at the end of it, saying, I want to talk to you about that Princess Diana routine. And so I went into damage limitation mode. I said it wasn't making fun of her. It was about the ridiculous overreaction of all the tributes and everything. She went, oh, no, it's not that. I hate Lady Diana. (laughs) My father was a surgeon who had a ward named after him, and he died really young, and this ward was a tribute to him. And then when she died, they renamed the ward after her. (laughs) And I'm sick of hearing about her all the time and being reminded of my father's death. And I said, well, you've got to understand, I couldn't legitimately <laughs> have thought that I'd better not do this routine in case someone's father's name has been stripped off a ward. So, you know, some people's reactions to things are very specific, aren't they? But, you know, I mean, the, again, it's an interesting thing in that book, where we're, the, the point you make in it is I, I've written things 10 years ago about taste and comedy that are not relevant now because 10 years ago, the, you, you knew who the audience were. It was contained, and you—you know—you knew what was happening. In that what's happened in the last ten years is, first of all, you don't know about the use of recording equipment in a room. Mm. And sometimes, if you're improvising, you might say something that you wouldn't if you uh, had thought about it more. But it didn't used to matter because there weren't people with camera phones who then would put it up on the internet immediately when they got home. And also, the other thing is, stuff can be decontextualized and make its way around the world in a matter of minutes. And um, you know, people's whole lives have been destroyed, I think, because of decontextualized things. So, you know, un, um, it, it, that, that has changed. You have to think what will happen to this when it goes into a different place. And I was talking to another comic about this who won't let any of his stuff ever be filmed. Um, for, uh, and he, he was saying that now, if you're going to have stuff filmed or recorded, it's, its intent has got to be written through every inch of it like a stick of rock, so that any point where you snap it, it says what you actually think because you can't you can't tell at what point it's going to be going to be broken and chopped up and bits uh, taken off it. It's really difficult to to think like that.
1: Do you? Um, we're nearly. T- Times up but I want to um, ask I mean you've been a stand-up for well longer than me in fact so you'll be what, Only, 31 about six years months. Yeah, d- d- yeah there's probably about a year so, and, yeah. and that's like much much longer than me and the uh, um,
4: well I still think of you as new
1: yeah I know it's a really <laughs> weird thing isn't it it's still and, and that that's nothing to do with the passing of time that's due to my technique mm. uh, the uh, I presume he must be new. How could he have learnt so little in 29 years? But I also
4: still think of Sean Locke as this aged veteran because he started about a year before me and he seemed like he'd always been there. It's like going to school, isn't it, where the people in the year above you are always really old and the people in the year above you are really young, you know, but um, anyway, you, you oh, sorry. No, but, I was going to
1: yeah. say, the, uh, I, was, uh, the, I remember coming off from that gig we did for, we did that uh, benefit gig to buy a new gravestone for William Blake, yeah. which I felt was an archetypal benefit gig for you to run. <laughs> and uh, Well, I think you'll you find know. it's a very nice gravestone. And you did, it was great, see. yeah, it was Alan Moore and Shirley Collins or whatever, and, and I remember uh, walking uh, off, and you went, you know, why do you talk about so many things? <laughs> you should talk about... Talk about fewer things more specifically. And, uh, but I. Uh, it does sound like something I'd say. Yeah, it was. It was. You, you, and, and in many ways, you were right, but it's yeah. way too late to find that technique now at this age. But it's. Uh, but no, I was wondering, because I sometimes do think, would I have been happier or more content and not doing stand Because I think there's a certain kind of stand up, and I think, in fact, everyone who's been on tonight is. There's, it doesn't seem like there's any real choices no. that you kind of go. This is what you were going to be. You're going to be. A and when I tried to stop stand-up, I realised that whether it's made me happier or less happy in the end, is what I had to do. And I think that's, that that seems to mark people. And I wondered of you: is there any point where you have thought, why have I done this, and what could you know what could have been the alternative? And it seems that in a, even in many worlds theory, it's always that. In well, the
4: I end. did try to stop in um, 2001 because I was still. It, it, it not making a living out of it, you know, and it's partly because I was with an expensive promoter who are, who are left in the end. I did stop for about four years, and what 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 took me back to it was not the fun of being on stage or the psychological dependence. It was just that I was involved with this big theatre production, which also lost money and i realized it'd be much easier to just lose money on my own in rooms yeah. in rooms above pubs than having to organise 50 or 60 people to lose money so it just seemed like a simpler way of, you know but, but actually i know what that's sort of almost true what i thought is i could i could have a loss making critically acclaimed west end hit that i've got a 25% share in on that never pays out due to being banned and or or i could um or i could get Fifty quid for rooms above pubs on a on a on a Monday night, and at that point, that was fifty quid more than I was getting from there being eight hundred people in the Cambridge Theatre. You know, so it was it was, and actually, it was so and I also thought, you 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 can you can uh, you can just use all these people to put these ideas across or you can just say it yourself and describe a situation and that suddenly seemed like right, the most economic form of theatre of any of any type and I, I, I still really really think that, I don't think there's anything you can't talk about or do or any scene you can't conjure up and I think all, all stand-ups go through this when they get a TV series, they try to have little sketches that act out their ideas and I did it in the first series I did for BBC2 and you realise it's never as good as you just describing them because you wrote them with spaces for the audience to use their imagination to think what the things looked like and what the people sounded like, and you limit it by by realising it almost. And I think stand-up's the most purest point of the or, or spoken word of, like, where the idea connects with the imagination of the listener. There's no barriers of, um, of, of, uh, of other people's ideas of how to realise it. And that just seemed like something I then thought, well, I just want to do this for the rest of my life, because there's no... And I would have done it whether it had ever worked out or not. I, you know, I would have just carried on with it. And uh, what, what we're noticing now, and it's been a sad year for it, is that a lot of people have had, generation generational generation, well, there's three people have died this year who had no choice but to be stand-ups, but couldn't cope with it mentally or financially mm-hmm. or one way or another. And, and I think we're going to start seeing that, of the people that didn't get out in time, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, there were deferred casualties that tend to go a bit earlier in rock and roll, but have hung on in, in stand-up. But, yeah, there just didn't seem to be any other way of doing anything,
1: really. I remember Milton Jones saying he was doing some benefit gig, really big one with loads of very famous names, and he was in shock the next day. He was chatting to me, he said, there was a comic who was going, yeah, I reckon I only need to do one more tour, and then I've got enough money, just retire. And he was like, going, why, why would you go into yeah. this with the idea of making enough money? The whole point is, you go into it, and I just... And you've always been, I mean, your no. advice has always been excellent. I remember once at Glastonbury telling you about what it was like writing for Graham Norton and running out of um, sexual puns and, uh, <laughs> and writing jokes for Brian Connolly. And uh, after I went on about it for an hour, you went, that would be brilliant as a show. And I did it in Edinburgh and it was a fucking disaster. <laughs> and, uh, but it was such a disaster, it led me to do much more interesting things than Punch a yeah. Melon that represented <laughs> Vernon Kay's face. Um, <laughs> the... Uh, I still have such fright. Do that. Do that as a show. I did, Stuart. They didn't like it. Um, Well, I think I I think only.
4: But that is the thing about that you touch on again in this is like sometimes when bad things are happening to me, or I'm frightened, or I'm in fear of my life, there's a part of me ticking over, thinking this will be a really good show though when it's sorted (laughs) out. I sort of. I got. I say one more thing. I, I went to New York. To try to raise money for the opera that eventually bankrupted me about 20 years ago, and I, um, I it, all the guidebooks say don't get unlicensed cabs at the uh, at the airport. Get wait for a proper one. But I just split up with my fiance. I wasn't living anywhere. I, I had no money or future, and I sort of didn't really. I felt like I didn't really care what happened. I thought I'll get in an unlicensed cab. How bad can it be? And um, I got in this one. The bloke went, "I'll oh, wait there. We need someone else to make the ride work." I went, "All oh, right." And he went and found another tourist, a German bloke. Then the two guys got in the front and they started off. And the one started telling us this story about how he said, "I know you're a tourist." Why? He went, "Because you're walking through the the, uh, the airport. You don't know where you're going. You look really lost. You look vulnerable. You know this city is a jungle." Oh, everyone's sharks, which doesn't make sense. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, you've got to have your wits about you because people are out to get you and they're going to rob you or anyone that sees any sign of weakness. And I thought, he's telling me he's going to rob me. This is really interesting. And um, I'm in this unlicensed cab. No one knows I've got in it. I don't even know if the other bloke is a real tourist or whether he's in on it. He's telling me he's gonna rob me and he's making a sort of piece of theatre out of it. And I was kind of quite enjoying. I thought, well, I'm probably not gonna get killed, so how how bad can it get? It's quite it's sort of fascinating what's happening, you know. And then it, it sort of went on and on and on. Then the the German bloke said to me, What do you think's happening? And I said to him, I think he's going to rob us, and he's telling us he's gonna do it. Isn't it interesting? <laughs> <laughs> no. And um, then it pulled up in the end at this place I was staying. It was in some apartment somewhere. I thought, "That's interesting. Nothing's happened." And then I got out, and, the one, and all the time I was thinking, this will be a bit. you know, this will be a story. Even if I get stabbed or something, it's quite it doesn't really matter. It like, you know And uh, then something happened, like one of them handed me a bag, but it was the wrong bag, and that went back, and then the other bag, and it happened at the same time as I was paying and they ended up taking like all the cash that I had which was about $300 rather than the 40 and I didn't really realize till they'd gone and it was so beautifully done I didn't really <laughs> mind or care and I and I immediately processed it and thought that there'll be a story in that at some point you know and uh, I think that he does make a devil-may-care attitude. Not, not when you have kids, you change. But, I mean, Phil Nicholl's whole career was built on... Uh, not whole career, say, but a lot of his, his best shows were about him putting himself in incredibly t- terrifying situations and seeing what would happen. And the brilliant Greg Fleet show. Greg Fleet's probably... You were talking about heroin addiction. Greg Fleet's an Australian comic who, along with Shaw News, probably invented the narrative comedy show that some Americans are now claiming to have invented 30 years after <laughs> it was ever done. <laughs> What about shows that are like a story that makes sense? So uh, <laughs> um, he, got, he got kidnapped, you know, and uh, wrote a really funny show about that. It was one of the first long-form shows I saw. He was an example of a heroin addict who his career has only been harmed by that. <laughs> <laughs>
1: But that $300, that's an interesting thing, because you go, it's cost you $300, but if you write a 15-minute piece of that, yeah. and you play to 400 people a night. I, know. I remember Sarah Kendall doing that. She was very cross. She'd brought something from River Island, and then they'd ripped her off, and it cost her 25 quid. But she turned it into a seven-minute routine, and then she worked out she got £200 per 20-minute set. And so she was in profit within three days from yeah. being ripped off by River Island. I think that's a kind of... I remember that time my house flooded with shit. Oh, and, that was funny. Uh, And it's still... It was so annoying because that was one I, of the I best with...
4: things I've ever seen. Yeah, was.
1: and I could never do it again. No, one his night... house
4: flooded with shit, and we were in Edinburgh, and he was backstage waiting to go on. And Robin's wife Nikki was on the phone describing how all of his record collection had been flooded with shit. And he was going, "What? Even the like, yeah. <laughs> even the Family Cat owl? <laughs> so they going, "Yeah," like, like, and he knew. What the level of the shit was because his records, as they should be, were kept in alphabetical order. So he knew that, he knew that it had taken out like the wishing stones and things that began <laughs> V W X Y Z on the bottom layer, and it was so funny. And he was then he went on stage and he talked about how all the things he'd spent his life collecting had been ruined by the people next door blocking up the sink with fat and everything and it was absolutely one of the funniest I've... but then you could never write it I could, never, you? It could never get it back because it was just in the moment of him processing this awful thing and in fact backstage it was even funnier because we could only hear <laughs> his side of the conversation so you, and you knew that, that Nicky was describing all this shit going on on these records and um, of course the way what you should have done I mean, it's too late now but what you should have done <laughs> on stage is Just been on the phone, and we the audience would have imagined what Nicky was saying. It seems, you know, too late again. That would be the way to go back to it and do it like that. Like Bob Newhart would have done it. Bob Newhart, imagine there's a guy, and his house is flooded with shit, (laughs) but he's also a record collector. What would the phone call from his wife be like? You know, I think it would go a little bit like this. (laughs) (laughs) Watch (laughs) that, honey.
1: (laughs) We have run out of time. Surely the Uh. Crowded
4: House albums
1: are all right. (laughs) They're only... Crowded House? (laughs) Fucking hell. Rude. Uh, thanks very much for coming down. I'm going to be outside. Uh, if anyone wants to get a, a book or have a chat or anything like that, uh, and then I'm just going to have a drink. And because uh, I've been pulled from being on the Andrew Neil show, because the BBC have been tremendously useful in trying to promote this fucking book. And uh, so uh, thank you very much to, uh, to Grace, to Stuart, to Josie, to Philippa, and thank you very much for coming down. Hopefully, we might see you at Nine Lessons and Carols. But...
0: thank you very much for listening we hope you enjoyed this week's episode do uh rate and review the show on spotify and apple Podcasts and wherever you listen to the show uh support what we do at patreon.com slash book shambles and we'll be back with a new episode next week
1: this podcast is part of the cosmic shambles network
0: Josie robbins book
1: shambles was produced by trent burton of trunkman productions <laughs>